This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear Douglas Murray on how the Prevent Scheme has lost sight of its founding intention, Owen Matthews on Rome's rubbish, and finally, Lionel Shriver gives her review of Dave Chappelle's new transgressive Netflix special. First up, Douglas Murray. More than any other country in the West, Britain has become practised in the arts of self-deception and subject avoidance. If a politician in France had been butchered by a Muslim of Somali descent, the French media and political class would have gone through a cycle of debate about the ideology that propelled the killer. Government and security sources would have talked about the networks surrounding the suspect, and the whole society would have learned a little more about what might have led to such an outrage. In Britain... The situation is otherwise. David Amos was stabbed to death in a church while holding a surgery for his constituents. The man apprehended for his killing is a 25-year-old of Somali descent named Ali Harbi Ali. In the days since then, we have learned that the suspect had been referred to the government's Prevent programme seven years ago, while still a sixth former at Riddlesdown Collegiate School in Purley. Yet the political classes have once again shown themselves incapable of even being able to speak about the most likely source of the problem. From the immediate aftermath of the murder, Politicians talked of the killing almost as though Sir David had died of natural causes. Sadiq Khan, among other senior politicians, tweeted his sorrow that Sir David had passed away. When the Commons met on Monday to commemorate Sir David, it was once again as though a colleague had merely died uncommonly suddenly and unnaturally early. Compare this with the aftermath of the killing of Joe Cox in 2016, when the entire pro-Brexit movement seemed for a moment to be in the spotlight as anything from inspiration to actual co-conspirators. The UK knows what to do when a far-right maniac goes on a murder spree, but as reactions since last week have shown, even after all these years, we remain utterly unsure of how to even speak about likely Islamic radicalism. It is why Andrew Marr spent his Sunday morning show on the BBC questioning the Home Secretary about online anonymity. There is no evidence at all that the murderer of Sir David Amos was bothered by questions of anonymity, either online or off. Abuse of MPs is said to have reached particularly high levels of late, and politicians of all parties have expressed growing concern about the matter. So, perhaps, it was inevitable that when the Commons reconvened earlier this week, friends and colleagues of Sir David's should have talked about the government's online harms bill and about increased abuse of MPs. 
The fact that some of that abuse comes from MPs' own colleagues, such as Labour's deputy leader Angela Rayner, went politely unmentioned. But missing from any of the obituaries or comment was the matter of why a young man might have butchered Sir David in the first place. Of course, at this point, it is normal for excuse-makers to note that we have a principle of innocent until proven guilty in this country. But that did not prevent speculation about the killing of Joe Cox in the months before her murderer was tried and convicted. Besides, there is much evidence that in the case of Islamist extremists, even the moment after a trial and conviction never brings the much-heralded debate this country remains so reluctant to have. For instance, how much debate or discussion was there in January when Kairi Sadala was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of three gay men in a park in Reading in June last year? Wait till the verdict, said the legal and sublegal minds. But the trial came and went, and nobody seemed to much care about Sardala's immigration status. He was a Libyan asylum seeker, shouting of Allah u Akbar, or boasting after the attack that he had killed the right people. People talked about the importance of coming together and demanded that the government stop such attacks from happening in the future. But because Britain never does get down to the details, there is no reason to think that this problem will go away. It is not as though the apparatus is not there to at least try to address the problem. Six years ago, the David Cameron government commissioned Dame Louise Casey to lead a review into how to tackle extremism in the UK with a special emphasis on problems of integration. Casey did a good job at looking at a tough problem. The government of Theresa May finally published the review, the usual Muslim groups condemned it, and then the whole thing was shelved. Another problem pushed away to be dealt with at some later date. And yet nothing demonstrates the British unwillingness to tackle extremism so much as the programme which picked up on Ali Harbi Ali and then lost sight of him. The Prevent programme was set up by Tony Blair's government in the aftermath of the London suicide bombings in 2005. Its aim was to tackle Islamic radicalism in the UK. From the outset, it faced a set of wholly predictable challenges. A near entirety of the UK's official Muslim organisations condemned Prevent from the outset. Many of them spent the ensuing years simply lying about the programme. In particular, they performed the self-pitying trick of complaining that Prevent targeted or singled out British Muslims as a security threat. And so, as the years went on, Prevent went out of its way to prove that it was not what its obsessive Muslim detractors said it was. It did this, among other things, by spreading out its remit to take in other forms of extremism as well. 
In time, Prevent boasted of the amount of work it was doing to tackle right-wing extremism, which it sometimes had the decency to remember to call far-right extremism. Over recent years, it has expanded to take in every other form of extremism, including incel terrorism. Today, Prevent is a vast, sprawling blancmange of a programme. Nobody even seems sure how many people work for it. It is another great bureaucracy of lost purpose. A programme set up to tackle one form of extremism now ostensibly seeks to root out and tackle extremism wherever it finds it. So, across the UK, tens of thousands of teachers, university lecturers, healthcare professionals and others have been put through prevent training to help them identify signs of radicalisation. And because prevent officials do not ever want to be seen to be singling out Islamic fundamentalism, there is an endless emphasis on the range of radicalisations towards which the average British person is allegedly vulnerable. No prizes for guessing which of these subjects Home Office officials and others find it easiest to discuss. Violence against women and girls is one of the latest, more fashionable types of extremism to oppose, because, strangely, it is easier to talk about this, and it does not bring the suspicion that might be accrued by anyone concerned about Islamic radicalism. Nevertheless, it is Islamic extremism that still constitutes the UK's number one terrorist threat. Nobody could deny that there are other types of extremism, but Prevent was set up to tackle that one, and it long ago lost the desire or direction to keep its eye on that goal. Those who oppose its Islamist focus have in recent years been gleeful in telling people that most online referrals of people to the programme involve alleged far-right sympathies. Ergo, these people imply, the real threat comes from there. In fact, Prevent has simply created more casework for its ever-expanding workforce. For if you look at the number of people put through to the next stage of Prevent, that is, the Channel programme, a disproportionate number are Islamists. All that has happened is that in the past decade, Prevent has told people to watch out for jihadis and also for people who might hold the wrong sort of views about immigration. In the process, it has created not just an unlevel definition of extremism, but also a lot more hay for itself to forage in. The predominance of Islamic radicals in the Channel programme confirms this, but Prevent remains unbothered by the mission creep that has defined it in recent years. And that has consequences. If your job is to find needles in the haystack, but you spend your days making as much hay as possible, then finding the needles naturally becomes ever harder. That is the situation our alleged counter-extremism programme has found itself in. When an Islamist carries out an attack in the UK, they almost always turn out to have been known to the prevent authorities. One reason why they are not followed up on is because prevent 
does not only encounter distractions, it creates them. Perhaps a more focused counter-extremism strategy could have saved more lives. More likely, it is impossible to ever have a state secure enough that a David Amos could have been protected from an individual such as the young man currently in custody. But we owe it to Sir David's memory, and the memory of the victims in the past, as well as those to come, to try not to divert ourselves, and trust ourselves as a country to have discussions that we are long past needing to have. That was Douglas Murray. Next we have Owen Matthews. Excommunication, reads a stone plaque on the wall of the Church of St Theodore in Rome, and a fine of 200 gold ducats for any person who should dare to unload waste of any kind and cause a stink outside these precincts. This threat might have worked when the plaque was erected in 1703, but it certainly does not work now. A few paces down the street, a waist-high pile of stinking rubbish bags festers in the autumn sunlight pecked at by seagulls. In Rome, even the rubbish is eternal. Italy's capital is strewn with litter, geological layers of the stuff. In a pile of last year's crumbled leaves by my house on the Tibet embankment, I found a beer bottle with a sell-by date of September 2020. Wild boar, Rome's equivalent of London's urban foxes, had been invading outlying districts to feast on rubbish. In May, a family of boar were filmed attacking a woman in a supermarket car park and stealing her shopping. But rubbish is not just unsightly and unhygienic. It's also become a major political issue that raises profound questions about whether Italy's institutions are fit to govern. Over the summer, anger over piles of uncollected refuse brought thousands of protesters out on the streets. Hundreds more turned out at new landfill sites to protest against the dumping of Rome's waste in their backyards. Clearing rubbish was a key issue on which the former mayor, Virginia Raggi, of the radically anti-establishment Five Star Movement, was elected back in 2016. Her failure to tackle the problem led to her downfall in elections this month. Rome is also conspicuously full of trash collectors. They career down the narrow back streets of Trastevere in miniature transit van-sized dust carts and nose around the city squares nightly in noisy sweeping machines. Yet the general level of rubbish never seems to subside. Everyone has a theory as to why. Corruption, of course, says Giulio Stalla, a restaurant owner in Trastevere, with a chop of the hand. The mafia controls it all. It's the tourists, says 79-year-old Vittore Michelotti, a lifelong Rome resident. A city of 3 million has to clean up after 30 million annual visitors. It's the unions, says Maria Strada, a supporter of the far-right-wing Fratelli d'Italia, the Brothers of Italy party, who attended a protest last week at the Circus Maximus against Italy's vaccine mandate laws. Everyone wants to get paid, nobody wants to work. In fact, they all correct. On coming to power, Raggi had to clean the Orgean stables of inefficiency, dishonest bookkeeping and corruption that had beset Rome's waste collection agency, AMMA. 
Several private companies with alleged links to organized crime lost their contracts, and Amma was equipped with shiny new machinery. But Raji was unable to break the politically powerful public sector labor unions and their bizarre, restrictive practices. Our local bins on Piazza della Rovere, for instance, receive daily visits from various municipal vans dedicated to collecting different sorts of rubbish. But if the glass recycling bin happens to be full of general trash, they tip it out on the pavement, collect the empty bin and drive off. On days when there are no bins, locals just heap their black bags in a pile. Then there's the issue of litter urns. The old pillar box sized cast iron municipal urns emblazoned SPQR for the Senate and the people of Rome were removed en masse from the city centre after a terrorist group calling itself the Informal Federation of Anarchy left a bomb in one in 2010. Several dozen now stand forgotten like a tribe of rusting Daleks under the Belvedere on the Janicola Hill. They were replaced by transparent plastic bags, which became hanging smoggers boards for the city's razor-beaked seagulls. Raji commissioned new seagull-proof steel bins, but so far they are a rarity. A far more fundamental problem is one of Italy's crumbling infrastructure and the demands of environmental regulations. A gigantic landfill outside Rome called Malagrotta, literally evil grotto, was Europe's largest until the EU forced it to close in 2013 for poisoning the water table. Ever since, the authorities of Rome have been trying to find alternative sites in the surrounding Lazio region to dump the city's trash. The politicians of Lazio have resisted, unsurprisingly. The result is that in 2017, more than 70,000 tonnes of Roman trash had to be trucked up to Zventendorf in Austria for incineration. That left some 1.6 million tonnes to be disposed of locally. For millions of Italians, rubbish has become a symbol of the dysfunction of the Italian state and a focus for successive waves of popular anger and the populist politicians who feed on it, from the now-collapsed five-star movement to the right-wing Liga and the Fratelli d'Italia. Former radio talk show host Enrico Michetti won the first round of local elections in Rome after an endorsement by the Fratelli. Rachele Mussolini, a granddaughter of the fascist dictator, was elected by a landslide as a local councillor for the same party. Someone needs to bring order to Italy, says Fratelli's supporter Strada. Everything is broken. In the second round of the election last weekend, enough Romans ran scared of a Fratelli-backed candidate to elect centre-left former finance minister Roberta Gualtieri as their new mayor. It was a narrow victory for the old Italian political establishment. But if Gualtieri is to keep the forces of populism at bay, he has to find a way to tackle Rome's eternal rubbish problem. Perhaps he could ask the Pope to threaten litterbugs with excommunication. That was Owen Matthews. And finally, Lionel Shriver. I'm accustomed to a sense of urgency in relation to Netflix offerings because the streaming service often buys short-term rights that abruptly run out. But this time, I rushed to see Dave Chappelle's new stand-up special, The Closer, lest 
Netflix's own disgruntled employees succeed in getting the performance taken down. Strictly speaking, the affronted staff aren't demanding the show's withdrawal, but it's hard to see what else the proposed employee walkout on Wednesday was designed to accomplish. After all, in the olden days, if you didn't like something on television, you just didn't watch it. But in our enlightened times, you make damn sure no one else can watch it either. Chappelle stoked the ire of trans activists with less-than-reverent jokes about gender swappers in his last Netflix show, Sticks and Stones. After being widely trashed as a transphobe, the comedian isn't choosing to give such incendiary material a judicious wide berth, but in the new routine, doubles down. In the interest of preserving his right to send up anyone he cares to, This is a sound stratagem. See, you can't intimidate me. The show's most transgressive lines, his calling surgically altered genitals impossible pussy, alluding to vegetarian fake meat, are also the funniest. Where the performance sags is in its sincere bits. Particularly ill-judged is an overlong riff on a trans comedian who opened one of Chappelle's acts, and who was subsequently lacerated on social media for supporting a notorious transphobe. Thereafter, Chappelle reveals dramatically, his colleague committed suicide. This is not funny, nor is it intended to be. The whole extended riff isn't funny. Its purpose is to demonstrate that Chappelle cares deeply about trans people, that he knows and admires actual trans people, that he is not a transphobe. In short, Chappelle sounded defensive, which has a lousy reputation for good reason. Defensiveness is a strategic mistake. It signals weakness. It betrays that your detractors got to you, and however weirdly, it also waves the red flag of guilt. In an era of so much finger-pointing that the censorious will soon have to resort to making jabbing accusations with their toes, this is a commonplace quandary. When other people call you names and besmirch your reputation, how do you defend yourself? without becoming fatally defensive. Whenever I denied having done something wrong as a kid, my father's most exasperating rhetorical gambit was the misquotation of Hamlet, Methinks thou dost protest too much. So, I was guilty if I didn't deny the misconduct, and guilty if I did deny it. Oh, swell! That's why we have principles like innocent until proven guilty, to counter the unfortunate fact that mere accusation imputes taint. Thus, the best way to convince the public that you're a racist is to claim you're not one. As Bright Sheng, a musical professor at the University of Michigan, discovered last month, He'd shown his class a 1965 film of Laurence Olivier playing the role of Othello in blackface. 
Students were flamboyantly horrified and complained to the administration. Sheng apologized, error, and cited examples of his long-standing support for minorities. That is, he was defensive, an even bigger error, after which the professor was obliged to quit the class. Many spectator readers will be aware that your humble columnist here has been subject to more than one wholesale assault in both social and legacy media. Reliably, something I've said or written has been maliciously, willfully misrepresented. I've experimented with defending myself, or, as I saw it, explaining myself. Look, did any of you people actually read the column? And sure enough, that approach backfires. What works better is aggressive counterattack, coming out with guns blazing. Alternatively, there are merits to a Gandhi-esque refusal to be drawn. When you blithely ignore all manner of slanderous huffing and puffing, it's miraculous how fast the opposition exhausts itself, and all that slung mud evaporates to dust. So long as you can keep your job, quite a caveat at present. The very best response to being vilified is not to speak directly to outlandish accusations, but to carry on doing what you've been doing, to refuse to be waylaid. In my case, that means continuing to express what I think, even if I'm courting more trouble. In Chappelle's case, that should have meant putting together a routine that includes only the snarkiest, most outrageous gags about trans people, the bits that are genuinely, scandalously funny, and then moving on to other targets about whom he could also be funny, which too much of his latest material isn't. The failings of the closer aren't political, but artistic, Having tempted the comedian to damage the quality of his act with all that pleading that deep down he's really a nice person, his traducers score a win. I'm a huge Dave Chappelle fan. He's done more to advance American race relations than all the unconscious bias training courses put together. So, Dave, a little free advice. You can't please people who don't wish to be pleased. Like, a while back, I was approaching a red light on my bike. An older woman had just started into the crosswalk, scowling with a bitterness that looked habitual. Her mouth was already open when I stopped. She'd been poised to shout at me for jumping the light, and my compliance with traffic laws ruined her good time. Furious, she sputtered desperately instead, You're supposed to stop at that white line, you know. I couldn't help but laugh. As she didn't wish to be pleased, pleasing her only intensified her displeasure. Like the rest of the woke brigade, most trans activists 
by nature, do not wish to be pleased. Ergo, appeasement is pointless. So just keep doing what you'd been doing, friend. Thus far, Netflix is sticking by the closer. Professional critics may have been incensed, and I may have been disappointed, but the show maintains a 96% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. A thousand audience complaints are negligible among 10 million views. A blessed iron rule is holding. At least black comedians can still make jokes. That was Lionel Shriver. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.